The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 29 and 30. Despite Martin's efforts to heed Gottlieb's warning and keep his discovery to himself, word of it gets around to Tubbs, the Institute director, and Tubbs pounces on him. He says that Martin may have hit on one of the discoveries of a generation, and that he has plans for him. He dazzles Martin with visions of a new department of microbic pathology, with Martin at its head, relief from war duties, a full-time assistant, more room, technicians, and $10,000 a year. He extols the virtues of cooperation in science, rather than silly, jealous, fumbling, individual research. Then, we see Gottlieb's stern warning unfold before Martin's eyes, in a passage that makes plain what the likes of Tubbs and Holabird are really after, and makes Martin feel as if his work, and indeed even his own self, have been taken from him. Tubbs says that they will cure staph, typhoid, dysentery. They will publish their results together, with Tubbs taking a good share of the credit. Holabird croons of Martin's magnificent future, which consists of acclaim by scientific societies, professorships, and prizes. He proclaims that they will erect a superstructure of cooperative science, with themselves as dictators. Practical healing, as a means to money, fame, and power, seems to be what animates the Institute's leaders, the men of measured merriment. And Martin perceives the horror of the shrieking body thing called success. Martin enlists the support of Gottlieb, who says he will gird up his loins to battle the forces of publicity. And loses, as Tubbs asserts his authority as director, and McGurk backs Tubbs. So, Tubbs urges Martin to publish his results and plug up the holes later. Nominally, he's after the greatest good for the greatest number. Really, he wants to make sure no one beats them to the glory. When Leora, seduced by the promise of prestige and an escape from poverty, declares herself for it, and Martin experiences the pleasures of respect, he eventually becomes for it himself. One of those apparent pleasures is finding himself the guest of honor in the cathedral-like home of Capitola McGurk, with an array of persons of importance in attendance. At the dinner, Capitola leans toward him in all her splendor to ask about his wonderful new scientific discoveries. But when he begins to answer her in scientific terms, she abruptly loses interest. She's not really interested in the science stuff. She prefers language that validates her self-image as a great white uplifter. Martin is faced again with the reality that it will be hard to keep up this twittering, a term I'm especially fond of, given the present hazards of social media, to capture superficial chatter. The next morning, Gottlieb brings him bad news. Someone at the Pasteur Institute has indeed beaten him to publication of the discovery of bacteriophage. Martin mourns his evaporated success, and though it is a sin against his religion, Gottlieb sympathizes. Then Martin scolds himself for his self-pity, comes out of his trance, and starts planning his next experiments with phage. 
For the following year, Martin toils at those experiments and resumes his evening studies. Then, one day, Tubbs comes to him to say he's been thinking that it is time Martin gave up his fundamental research and engaged in practical healing. Fearful of being fired and concealing his abandonment from Gottlieb, Martin turns his attentions to phage-produced immunity. He makes progress, but Tubbs doesn't stick around to see it. He leaves McGurk for a job with more power and twice the salary. This leaves open the question of who will be the next director. Factions form within the Institute, while eager candidates descend on it from without. A rumor circulates that Gottlieb's arch-nemesis Dean Silva has been appointed. And then, in a startling twist of fate, the board chooses Gottlieb himself. Martin is sure he will refuse, but Gottlieb accepts the position, voicing dubious reasons for the decision, including the fact that it will mean he has one-upped his rival. We the readers probably share a little of Terry Wickett's cynicism when his response is to mutter to himself in Latin, Rest in peace. Gottlieb has his moment of acclaim and honor before, under his leadership, the Institute becomes a shambles. Gottlieb quickly learns that it is impossible to confine his directorship work to an hour a day as he had planned. He is consumed by conferences, phone calls, dinner parties, and papers urgently requiring his signature. He is not benevolent enough to keep peace among the colleagues, not assertive enough to send away all the hopeful healers, and not patient enough to be polite to the important people. Martin is stunned by the realization that Tubbs's fussy unimaginativeness had made him a good director, while Gottlieb's genius makes him a feeble tyrant. Sundalius comes to take up one of the guest laboratories at McGurk. Sundalius admires Gottlieb's courage and anti-commercialism. Gottlieb resents Sondalius's bounding optimism and overall bigness. Martin begins experimenting with the use of phage to prevent and cure plague. He has some success and publishes a cautious paper on phage in plague that is commended by Gottlieb and mentioned in numerous scientific journals. Meanwhile, Martin continues his quest for the fundamental nature of all phage. Sondalius, once Martin's master, becomes his slave. Without concern for power or credit, he works in cheerful silence as Martin's assistant on this effort to conquer his enemy, Plague. The second of my posts was called Heaven Save Us from the Humanitarians. In recent chapters, we've seen repeated reference by Gottlieb or Martin to the damage done by the sentimentalists and professional optimists. These are people who think in fuzzily heartwarming buzzwords and who are concerned more with their own identity as uplifters than with any real contribution to human well-being. They are do-gooders, who in practice do, well, bad. This is another of Lewis's timelessly valuable insights, as he points out how easy it is to talk the talk of a humanitarian, and how hard it is to do something that sincerely benefits humanity. 
he makes the point that a devotion to science and truth that is cold, impersonal, and even antisocial can ultimately have the most warmly beneficent impact on society. This issue arises in Chapter 26, in Gottlieb's extemporaneous speech to Martin on the religion of the scientist. Quote, He must be heartless. He lives in a cold, clear light. Yes, this is a funny thing, really. In private, he is not cold nor heartless, so much less cold than the professional optimists. The world has always been ruled by the philanthropists, by the doctors that want to use therapeutic methods they do not understand, by the soldiers that want something to defend their country against, by the preachers that yearn to make everybody listen to them, by the kind manufacturers that love their workers, by the eloquent statesmen and soft-hearted authors. And see once what a fine mess of hell they have made of the world. Maybe now it is time for the scientist— who works and searches and never goes around howling how he loves everybody. Unquote. It comes up again later in chapter 26 in a discussion of Martin's unconsciousness of people and devotion to his work. Quote, Most people above the grade of hog do so much chasing around after a lot of vague philanthropy that they never get anything done. And most of your confounded shy people get spiritually pauperized. Oh, it's so much easier to be good-natured and purring and self-congratulatory and generally footless than it is to pound ahead and keep yourself strictly for your own work, the work that gets somewhere. Very few people have the courage to be decently selfish, not answer letters, and demand the right to work. If they had their way, these sentimentalists would have had a Newton, yes, or probably a Christ, giving up everything they did for the world to address meetings and listen to the troubles of cranky old maids. Nothing takes so much courage as to keep hard and clear-headed. Unquote. It comes up in these chapters in Tubbs's dishonest, or at least misguided, work toward the greatest good for the greatest number in Capitola McGurk's melodious talk of relieving the sad old world of its illness and utter lack of interest in the science that makes such things possible, and in the sprightly lady's self-important concern about the well-being of the guinea pigs. It is the theme of another great work of literature by Ibsen, a play in which a doctor is branded an enemy of the people, for trying to save them from dying of diseases spread in the town's contaminated public baths, while his philanthropic politician brother is regarded as a hero for trying to keep the contamination a secret and save the reputation and financial solvency of the town. It's a thought-provoking theme, and one we can see reflected on any given day in any given newspaper. Let me know if you do. The last of my posts was called Puzzling Moments. One of our group members, Carrie Ann, brought up two moments in these chapters that she says left her a bit puzzled. Both caught my attention, too, so I thought I'd share my thoughts on one of them here and the other next week. First, that Leora encouraged Martin to take the department head position, and second, that Gottlieb would accept the directorship of the McGurk Institute. 
Both of these events seem to me simultaneously surprising and unsurprising. I'll try to explain both reactions. Leora is certainly one of the most consistently admirable characters in the novel, and what is most admirable is her utter unpretentiousness, her ability to see and willingness to call out pretensions in others, and her unwavering, loving support for Martin, and especially for his efforts to eradicate any pretentious inclinations in himself. So, from that standpoint, it seems surprising that when Martin has anxieties over Tubbs's demands that he publish his results and his promises of glory, Leora declares herself for it. Quote, Why not? Ten thousand a year would be awfully nice, Sandy. Gee, we've always been so poor, and you do like nice flats and things, and to boss your own department. And you could consult Dr. Gottlieb just the same. He's a department head, isn't he? And yet he keeps independent of Dr. Tubbs. Unquote. But here are some thoughts about why, to me, and maybe to you, it felt unsurprising. First, I think Sinclair Lewis is still leaving open this question about whether pure science and practicality are really completely at odds. In this moment, I think it might actually strike Leora and Martin as plausible that they can have their religion of the scientist and a high salary too. Of course, the plausibility of this idea is, as always, quickly shattered, this time by Martin's first dinner at the McGurk's. The compatibility or incompatibility of science and worldly success is one he just visits and revisits and visits again, each time with the feeling of maybe, and then a resounding no. Second, though I love her, I really do, I don't find Leora's character convincingly developed enough that an inconsistency like this would truly surprise me. She's been one of the most remarkably constant characters, but stepping back, it's a little difficult for me to see a fundamental consistency in her soul. Could someone simultaneously possess a strength of character that allows them to cut through all pretensions, and a willingness to sit at home curled up like a kitten with no real values or interests of her own? If, for those who have read it, the Fountainhead's Howard Rourke momentarily encouraged someone to compromise, you'd throw the book across the room. It would be in contradiction with everything that had been clearly established about the very fiber of his soul and it would simply make no sense. Here, it sort of seems not to make sense, but it is a universe and a set of characters where sense doesn't as strongly prevail. I've said before that I don't think Lewis's outlook really admits of heroes. He has strong convictions about right and wrong, and his characters do better and worse in their moral efforts, but it seems like no one is immune to weakness. The most consistent exemplar of goodness in the Aerosmith universe has been Gottlieb. But then, he takes the job as director of the Institute. And, well, let's talk about that next time.